series is going to be a little different than the previous ones because uh, each session is going to be on an individual topic, or pretty much. I think we have one topic that's a, that's that's two weeks. Uh, this particular class, I could make it its own series, um, but I'll try to condense it all into one. Uh, it's a, a discussion. Uh, the uh, I call it the five C's of every happy, harmonious, and stable marriage. And the goal of this presentation is to demonstrate what I believe is the key characteristics that mark every successful marriage. And uh, conversely, the opposite would hold true for marriages that fail. So one thing I want to start off with is that I think in today's day and age, we can all agree that modern humans, at least in America, are really, really, really bad at marriage. How do we know that? Very high divorce rates, right? rates that uh, rates of failure that would not be tolerated in, in any other part of life. Like, you know, if, if the literacy rate was fifty percent, or the illiteracy rate, or the crime rate, or the suicide rate, or any other rate of success and failure was this dramatically skewed to the failure, I don't think people. I think the calls for change would be unanimous. Everyone would agree something has to change. So we have to reformat a broken system. Something's wrong. If 50% of people who pledge till death do us part renege on that vow, obviously something is wrong. There's a major shift. People go into marriage with a certain intention and that changes. Yeah, so so um, so there is the idea of a social stigma as well. Uh, that, that's true, and that contributes greatly. That's why different societies, um, the way they view divorce will impact the divorce rate. That's also true. But either way, what we what, what, what's clearly quantifiable is that a great, great number, I would say the majority of people who get married are in some capacity over some point in time very, very unhappy with that decision and try to sever that relationship. And as you see, the statistics are very clear. Uh, almost exactly 50% of the people who get married every year, right, the number of people that get married every year, uh, that's the same amount of people that get divorced. So it's almost exact about 50%. It's the, the, number, the, number, the number shifts a little bit between 45 and 55. But either way, it's, a, it's an alarming number. And that's divorce. And those numbers are the quantifiable numbers. We don't have data on the people that are miserable in their marriages, are supreme candidates for divorce, but don't get divorced because, like you said, the social stigmas, the religious stigmas, the financial pressures, um, they want to stay together for the kids. For a multitude of reasons, people could be I'd want, I, I, be unhappy in their marriages yet remain married and therefore are not a statistic. We don't know that. And, you know, we have uh, the, the phenomenon of, of, you know, of, of separated couples, which means that they're de facto divorced, but they're not actually in the county registering that and we can't, we can't count that. According to one study, 15% of all people that get, the, get separated, of all couples that get separated, remain separated in perpetuity. 
Fifteen percent. Fifty percent means they don't. They don't. They neither reconcile nor divorce. They just stay in limbo forever. But they stay legally married. Stay legally married. Exactly. So that means that there's a huge number of people that are not registering on the date of divorce, which are de facto divorced. They're separated forever. And then you have those people who stayed together, for, like I said, for one of the many reasons, but they have separate lives. They have separate bedrooms and separate TVs and separate cars and separate bank accounts and separate everything, separate lives. Let's stay together for the kids. We've all heard that, right? So point is, clearly, humans are terrible at this, uh, this endeavor of life. And it's something which is, I, I think it's, it's, it's also... It's also such an important part of our lives that we can't just say, oh, yeah, we're bad at this. Well, he can't be good at everything, right? It's so important because it's, you know, that's, it's probably the biggest decision you, people make is who they marry, and it impacts their lives more than any other decision. So it's a very important decision, yet humans are very bad at it. So, and we know, like, divorce, divorce is terrible for your health. Your emotional health, the statistics, I've said and everything. Like, uh, according to one Yale researcher, this is a nice way to put it, it says getting divorced is worse than smoking a pack of cigarettes every day. Like, the cancer goes up, heart, the heart, heart disease goes up, the trips to psychiatric treatment skyrocket uh, in divorcees. Uh, obviously, there's the financial burdens of a the divorce and the alimony, the child support, the custodial asset division battles, right? Tax implications. There's so many bad things that come along with divorce, and that's for the parents and the kids. The kids also suffer miserably. And I, I feel like there's, you know, there's a need for a revolution. We have to change, reformat the way we think about marriage, vis-a-vis marriage and divorce, because this is something which almost everyone does, and most people, it seems like, are very bad at doing it. And, it's a, and it has very over, overreaching uh, consequences. Now, I'm not trying to suggest, like uh, some societies in the past have, that divorce is never an option. I don't think anyone should be forced to stay in a marriage that they're not happy in, or that they're abused, God forbid. Or that's not that's not that's not the intention of what I'm trying to present here. Are your um, statistics um, statistics specifically for the U.S.? Yeah, it's the U.S. I'm saying different countries is different. Yes, but the, that's the society, well, you know. Let me ask, and again, this may go on the, the issue of no, you agree nobody should be forced to uh, stay in America. Absolutely. Uh, should we try and do something more like the Catholic, the way I understand the Catholic Church does? Because I, I think Catholics, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, who are devout or relatively devout? Divorce is and, not an option. Yeah, and they aren't. The, isn't there less uh, statistically less divorce in the Catholic? Uh, uh, Catholic Which church? could be for one of two reasons. And this is this is why anytime you take data statistics and you try to analyze it, you have to always um, understand the unintended consequences. So those people, um, it might be uh, religious, it might be social as well. Or it might be that they actually have better marriages. 
you know, someone once made a uh, survey amongst Orthodox Jews, remarkably low divorce rates. Now, that could be because the women expect... Well, it's a small sample of people. Well, not so small, but it's a rel- it's sizable. But it could be that maybe the women expect less or the men expect less. So maybe the marriages are as good as everyone else's, right? Or maybe it's a societal thing. It's a stigma, like we said. Maybe there's a greater stigma for divorce or a greater emphasis on... But maybe but maybe a greater emphasis on maintaining your marriage is actually a good thing for the marriage. That's why it's, it's always hard to... What we're going to try to do with these five Cs is try to reach core root reasons why marriages succeed and fail. Uh, but but yes, it's possible that an attitude of one of the one of the uh, five characteristics is commitment, and it's possible that an attitude of commitment we're in this for the long term. Right? We're dedicated to each other, right? We're not getting divorced. It's not an option. Not that it isn't an option, but in our minds, we're doing this for the long term. We're growing in. Right, uh, you know, but maybe fully submerging but, ourselves. But I think when people do something with a spiritual reason for it, they they have more passion. They it's just they take it more seriously. So that might be another reason. Uh, but uh, clearly, uh, we cannot rely. Another point here: we can't rely on experience. This is another interesting thing. It's not something you can kind of um, say. You know what? We'll we'll test the waters. And, uh, you know, we'll try it out. We'll, we'll gain experience. I had a friend who once told me, I mentioned this in a class uh, last time I gave this because I was listening to it on the way, that I had a friend who once told me that he wants to get married once and then get that over with and, and then settle down and get married again. <laughs> and uh, you think that, like with everything else in life, like you assume that some, if you do something more than once, you'll be better at it the second time than the first time. Statistics don't prove that. And statistics don't prove that because... Second marriages fail at a greater rate, 67%, and third marriages at even a greater rate, 74%. Well, to, to a certain extent, I think that's the mindset behind some people who say that trial marriage is, is a good idea, living together because you can get an idea of whether you can get along or not, and I don't think statistics bear that out. But again, that's also – I have statistics. I try to collect a list. trial thing you live together, I think one of the things he's going to bring up is that you should do that vetting process beforehand. I mean, you should know whether or not you're going to get it. Before you even ever get into a living but remember, this whole this sec- so. second marriage thing could always be viewed the other way around. Say, hey, out of 100 people that got divorced round one, only 67% got divorced round two. So maybe the reason why people that are Maybe why the, mar- the the divorce rate in second marriage is, is higher than the divorce rate in first marriage is because the people that are getting divorced are more likely to get divorced again because they're just the divorcing type. They have characteristics which yeah, maybe don't – or, or, or maybe there's a reason why they got divorced the first time. Um, because they married the same kind of person the uh, second time. That's another point. Maybe they selected the wrong partner. Uh, now, but trying out, I think – in, in my perspective, is a terrible idea because uh, we find that the longer, this is statistics again, like the longer um, or the more intimate a relationship exists before marriage, the more likely it is to fail after marriage. Like there's a, there's a link between premarital and extramarital sex always. Like the divorce rate of those uh, couples that have uh, 
you would assume, hey, you, know, you want to test out the, uh, right? You want to test it out, right? You would think, you know, that makes, that seems like a very logical uh, approach. Uh, but in reality, divorces are 48% higher in couples that have engaged in premarital sex. So maybe experience beforehand or due diligence undergoing the process of selection, the vetting process, is important, but not necessarily having an established relationship, like trial marriage. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's a way to, uh, you know, to, to find out who, what you're getting yourself into without actually get yourself into that. So this is all by way of introduction by saying that there's something very important that's part of our lives, uh, that its success and failure is very crucial to our happiness, to our health, to our well-being, emotionally, physically, financially. And it's something that in America today, people, for whatever reason, are very bad at it. They're very bad, they're very unsuccessful at it, and and it's it's it, you know and, and it's a shame. It's a shame people spend so much money on their weddings, and they make such a big deal out of it. And then it all goes for naught. And there's kids involved, and there's pain, and it's it's wholly unnecessary. And it's obviously we cannot root out all divorce, but what, but what we want to do is to isolate the reasons, uh, the indicators that are going to cause success and failure in marriages. Okay, so we have found that there are five root causes, and the term root causes is important. Because sometimes people will say that, oh, we got divorced because of finances. We couldn't agree on finances. That's a very common thing. Oh, 78%, whatever number they throw out, the financial advisors. It's very important to have a a prenuptial because uh, finances and keeping finances separate because that's just another obstacle you have to to, uh, uh, undergo you know, in marriage. And in, that may, in fact, be a reason. However, it's not a root cause. If people have a good marriage, otherwise, if they rely on each other, they care for each other, they worry about each other, they live a life together, finances is never an issue. It's only an issue when there's other reasons. There's more fundamental problems with the marriage then it'll spark up in other areas, in, you know, in more minor areas of life. Fi- they're finding about everything. The finding goes about finances. I, I mean, I get, I am a financial advisor by trade, and um, I get asked that from time to time with affluent people, but primarily when they are in a second, possibly entering in a second marriage. And my, you know, I also have to be careful because I have a personal feeling and a financial feeling on it, which sometimes conflicts, but. I think ultimately I agree with you, or I think with what you're saying is that, I mean, there shouldn't be any reason for a prenup if there's trust there to begin with. You know, uh, and if there's not trust there to begin with, there shouldn't be a marriage marriage to begin with. Uh, So, yeah, I would think even if there's overwhelmingly more wealth on one side than the other, um, you know, the marriage should not be entered into if they don't... uh, you know, if they don't have to trust Yeah, but your job as a financial analyst or advisor, I'm, I'm the relationship advisor. So you would say from the financial perspective, hey, maybe it makes sense to keep finances separate. So what do you recommend? Well, it, it depends on, I try and take both sides, which is not my political stand, as you know very well, Janet, on political issues. But, you know, I also come from a different perspective when I have, because uh, I've got legal implications right. in the things that I say, too. Um 
you know. But I mean, I, I think I try to, without being over uh, overbearing on it, I try and say, you know, well, there's been. I also, it's a case by case basis because there's been some that I've had no doubt that this was just lust, and so you know, it, you can only go so far to say, don't do this if you think that there's anything other than that. And so I. I have suggested on certain cases, and this isn't my moral stance, but I mean, you know, you probably need to consider a prenup. But that's if I have really very little doubt that this is just not going to last. So, I mean, you know, um, uh, because if I just try and be the spiritual advisor and everything as opposed to and just say, you know, I mean, I'm sure y'all are in love and all that, and then, then it just falls apart, I could possibly be in trouble if... If they they accuse me later on of saying, well, he just said, don't worry about it, prenup, you know, mm-hmm. and then all of those things. Well, so, they're not paying you to be their spiritual advisor. No, and I always I file, you know, I always I've done this long enough to know where I always insert the disclaimers. Like I say, you know, I know certain aspects of tax law, but I'm not a tax expert. I can't give tax advice, so don't quote me on this. And I document that I tell people that. So if they come back at me and say he gave me legal advice or tax advice. I've got the notes that say, no, I specifically said, check this with your professional tax advisor or your legal professional. Mm. So I, I, it's a matter of, uh, you know, I try to get balanced, but I also have to document what I say. If I get into an area that's not my area of expertise, I got to say that I told them that. Okay. So who here agrees that we have to uh, reframe uh, the marriage uh, number one, the selection process, and number two, the attitudes. Everyone agrees. Everyone, everyone agrees that, from a logical perspective, we have a problem, um, or at least the the incumbent way of doing things is proven to be uh, not as successful as we would hope for. Everyone agrees. Okay, so we're going to talk about five different areas, um, and I, I believe I, I'm going to. This is what I call the Wolby guarantee. The Wolby guarantee is that if a couple has all these five uh, boxes checked, I guarantee that they'll have a happy, harmonious, and stable marriage. Did you hear that? And that's documented. (laughs) Documentation. I guarantee it. Uh, And I feel comfortable doing that because I truly believe that these are the reasons why marriages succeed and fail. These are the reasons. And if these boxes are checked and you have all these five things, I feel confident enough to say your marriage will succeed. And I think we can look at married people that have had wonderful marriages and you'll notice that these have they have these five characteristics. And you look at marriages that fail and you'll notice very often they'll have none of them. Most of the time they'll have maybe one, uh, probably not even, but one or two or something like that, but that's not enough. All five guaranteed successful marriage. That's my will-be guarantee. And I feel confident doing that. And I think that uh, if you hear the presentation, you probably will agree. Okay, number one. What's the the first characteristic of a happy, harmonious, and stable marriage? And it's important to note they all begin with the letter C, so it's an easy way to remember it. C number one is compatibility. If a couple wants to be happily married, it's very important that they're compatible. What does it mean to be compatible? It means like this. You look at divorced couples. What do they say often? This is not what they signed up for. We were incompatible. 
irreconcilable differences. Or this is, I, I discovered something about my spouse that I, if I had I known earlier, I would never have wanted to marry them. They're stubborn, they're angry, they're impatient, they're, they're, they're abusive. There's something about them that had I known earlier, I would have not. I didn't sign up for this. I didn't sign up for this. And we could, you know, if we were to analyze it, we would say that this is a very specific, deep, profound relationship. There's someone very specific who meets, who should meet all the qualifications necessary to be compatible with you. Everyone is different. People have different nuances in their character. And therefore, there are people that you get along better with, you're more compatible with, and people that you're not less compatible with. And that's just the reality of, you know, of life. And therefore, the, and the more specific the area of the, 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 area of the relationship, right, the more narrow the field of compatibility is. Now, marriage is the ultimate individualized relationship. It's something that you're sharing your life with someone else. You have to find someone who's very, very compatible. Hence, if we were to analyze this, we would say that if you want to marry the right person, you have to find out beforehand if they're compatible. Why? Because we see people that get divorced, they're all miserable in their marriage, and they say, this is not what I was signed up for. I found this and this and this character about this person that would, had I known earlier, I would have uh, not made this decision. So how, how do we remedy that? By making sure that before someone engages in a, you know, in a marriage contract, so to speak, they know that this person is someone that they want to spend the rest of their life with. And they know that person's character, and they understand how their own individual character and that other person's character are compatible. This seems very logical. It's not such a, uh, a hoop to jump through. But it indeed is. Why is that? Because the way most people in the Western world engage in spouse-seeking does not mirror what we would think to be a process or the due diligence necessary to actually discover the character of the person, their prospective spouse. Most people, if you wanted, if you were to, uh, if you're doing mergers and acquisitions or you're trying to do due diligence to find, to find out if something really works out, right? does the numbers work out? What would you do? You'd go to the numbers and see if they work out. If you want to find out if someone is compatible with you, what do you do? You find out if that person is compatible. Hence, the dating process should be a process of character discovery, discovering, determining if this said person has the characteristics necessary to be compatible with me as a life partner. Now, how do you know what characteristics you need as a life partner? So you have to first know yourself a little bit. You have to know what your needs are. So I always advise to have some sort of roadmap, some sort of blueprint that you could follow and say, the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with should have the following, at least the following five characteristics. See, somebody should actually write them down, maybe, or at least have them in there. Or at least... Be of that mindset that right now I am engaging in a character discovery exercise.
and I think what you're saying is is really the root of what I'm trying to to convey here, and that is that dating should not be a relationship. It should be a process of determining whether a relationship is possible. That defies the logic of a relationship. Why is that? I, I don't agree with you at all. Why is that? I think that uh, what she's saying is far more the way relationships evolve. How do you date someone and not have a relationship with them? That's part of the process of dating. But if you have a relationship it's already... It's a superficial relationship if you're just dating around, right? No, but no. But my, my point is is that if you already have a relationship, then... What are you? Then you're not you're not doing your due diligence because your due diligence is to determine whether or not a relationship is possible. My point is like this: I think like um, dating is much better done at a coffee shop than at a movie theater. Why is that? Because because a movie theater is you're doing something together. It's passive. Right? It's it's something which you you would, you would do with someone you have a relationship with. A coffee shop is also something you would do some with, with when you, you would do some with someone you who, with whom you have a relationship. But it's also sometimes you go talk and spend two, maybe two hours with someone and just have conversation, and that conversation will open up a tremendous window into that person's character. That's my point. My point is not to say that it has to be so stiff and stoic that it's not a relationship at all, but it's a very, uh, it's, it's the nascent stages of relationship has to be determining whether or not the relationship is possible. That's my point. Uh, and obviously, it will evolve. But it, it, you know, obviously, old marriages evolve. I'm, I just said, just celebrated my seventh anniversary uh, yesterday, and I know, like, it's just a different, it's a different kind of life, you know. After, That I, I find that to be a wonderful idea. I you know uh, I don't even heard of the uh, the example of the blind the book called the Blind Watchmaker. So the Watchmaker theory is a theory um, that uh, our world is such is, you know is designed so perfectly that how is it possible that they you know could have evolved randomly. Everything's such such perfection in the world and the cosmos, but even us and our bodies and nature and the balance and everything works out so beautiful, so beautifully. It's like a watch. And how could a watch have been? How can you make a very intricate watch with blind? How could, the, the blind watchmaker. Like you can't really have a watch, a blind watchmaker uh, make a watch because they can't see. And how could they? How could they? You know, if it's just random, uh, you know, they, you don't have the ability to. To you know, to weigh you know, to make these decisions, you won't be able to make something so intricate. That's uh, so. I like to call this the blind matchmaker. Everyone has a matchmaker because everyone has something that's going to indicate to them whether or not this person is someone that right. This person is someone that I should you know engage in a relationship with. Everyone's going to have that. The question is, is it going to be a blind matchmaker? Or not. Like, I very much agree that if someone is introduced to someone else by a friend, by a mutual friend, it's often because that mutual friend thinks that the characters of these two people is compatible with each other. As opposed to if someone just sees someone and says, oh, this person looks wonderful. Maybe I should pursue this relationship. Well, then they're using a, using a, merely a visual cue 
to make a determination, a very important determination, this person is someone that they should be compatible with, and how much of a relationship is determined, how much of someone's character is determined or can be determined by visual means alone. But, very little. But hence, matchmakers have been very popular in societies. Yeah, there's more people, matchmakers. more, that's a, an industry that's probably bigger than it's ever been. Yeah, but, uh, I, like, I want, I wanted to make a, uh, a dating site that it doesn't have any pictures. That's right. It wouldn't do well because people they care about the pictures. Unless you could so on the ideas there's more to life than pictures. But because when people uh, use their own tools to determine, you know, who they should pursue a relationship, the first thing the way they connect other people is you know via visual, uh, you know, visual interaction. So that's. So I agree that it's very important. I'm not saying it's not important, right, right, but it, but if that's the only no, thing, no, I say it's about probably about. Yeah, I I agree, and I, I agree that that of course, if someone is not attracted to someone, they shouldn't marry them. No business marrying them. They're not compatible. <laughs> I agree with that. Uh, but that's not the only thing. And if that's going to be the uh, starting point of compatibility of a match, well, in all likelihood, there's going to be other aspects of character, which far greater importance than just visual, uh, that are going to flare up. And if they do not engage in the due diligence and they don't know each other's character, they can live with each other. I, I know people that have lived with each other for years beforehand. And then they get married and they get divorced. What do you mean? You, you live with someone for so long. How could you not know X, Y, and Z about that person? It's a legitimate question. And the answer is because if you're not looking out for X, Y, and Z, you may not ever see it. And it'll come, it'll, it'll come back to bite you and, you know, and, and you'll say, oh gosh, where'd that come from? Well, it was there the whole time maybe. Uh, maybe it was lying dormant, but it was still there. And if you never engaged in this character discovery, if you never had a list of things that are important to you, if you never spoke to someone and said, this person, the, do they have the uh, characteristics that I'm looking for in a relationship, you may have never found it. You also will find, though, as a relationship develops over 10 or 20 or 40 years, that the things that were important to you when you were younger cease to be important when you were older. And the reverse is also so, but character, this is an excellent point. So, if you have a shared interest with someone, that's a terrible foundation for a marriage. If you have a shared if interest you, with right, someone, exactly. that's a terrible foundation. foundation? Yes, because interests, like you said, change over time. Right. So do core beliefs. Core beliefs change when you get older. They change, you change. And the biggest thing that happens in a couple's ability to change is children. The biggest thing that happens in a couple's ability to change is children? children. What does that mean? Children change everything. The dynamic between a man and a woman before children enter the picture is fundamentally different when those children arrive. Your expectations are different. Men are happier before children. Absolutely. And after children leave. But during the time, you're, they're at least 
raising them during, while the children are in the house. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. By that standpoint, does that mean women are more happy uh, they were during children than before and after? They I don't know, but, the but she is absolutely correct. There's two women talking here. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I, I can tell I you think. what I've read and, yeah. and exactly what she's saying. Is what, right. this, I, they, they weren't looking at the women. I, should, I, they were working. So she, so she I need that. to check with my wife on this. But, uh, uh, that was interesting. It was just interesting to me. Because, like, I, I think maybe perhaps the reason why is because children require a lot of work. Well, and they also require a lot of work patience. from both parents. That's true. And unfortunately, That's women true. are the primary caregivers for children. I was children. about to say, she's right, because I will concede Barbara puts a lot more into Bradley than I do. And now you have a case where you don't have um, women that are stay-at-home moms. Many, most women in today's societies not only are taking the, um, the role of caregiver quite seriously, but they're also out in the working world. And I think that's a fundamental change in relationship between men and women. Uh, absolutely. And this also might be another reason for the global trend of, of you know, the changing attitude. Like, you know, it's the 50s. Like, women were primarily, you know, taking care of the home and the family. And that's You know, so it was a different kind of dynamic, um, which may be more conducive to successful marriages for whatever so reason. Is, is that... By that token, is should we go back more? To Not necessarily, but it, but we might need to change the expectations, either expectations or our approach. It's you know you you, you may be right that in an ideal world maybe that would be the best thing for marriages. Well, but we're not, we don't live in that world anymore. So with the reality, with the cards that we've been dealt, you know, it's just it's not necessarily the cards that we've been dealt. And the reality, or whatever. Choosing. Oh, what, the choosing reality of, of Doctor Laura. Now, maybe that's an extreme example, and you know, Jewish and very conservative, uh, and I think a, almost a rabbi herself uh, says, uh, which you know, I mean, she just takes the simple stand. I mean, uh, there's some merit to it, but she says, "You want to ha- don't have kids if you don't want to raise them." Absolutely, you know. You, and there's. It's just the wife and the husband. It's just the two of them. Right. Any time you become your family unit, even if it's the parents moving in, you know, with with you, uh, it becomes more complicated. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't you agree that it's a matter that we should advocate responsibility? Exactly. And, it's a matter, so. and there are too many people that decide to have children uh, for maybe superficial reasons right. or whatever, right. and that becomes a problem. Your, your, your supposition, though, is that most people have children because they've chosen it. That's not the reality also. Most children born today are not because they were inherently wanted. They are. You turn up pregnant. Well, but I, I think that's I the statistic for children. about responsibility. And so, Indeed. therefore, children born not because they're wanted, I think, could, I think that's my part of my point. I think people are not responsible for their activities. Absolutely. Look at the related uh, illegitimate children. (laughs) It's enormous. Or to vote. I think they do. Uh, I think some of them do. Uh, 
Oh, we're on the first seat. Okay. Okay. So I would want to say one more thing on compatibility. Uh, and this is just, I mentioned earlier, like a couple that engaged premarital sex is 48% more likely to get divorced. So there could be a few different reasons for that. I have a theory. Uh, my theory is, obviously more than one thing contributes to that number, but my theory is, is that when a couple is engaging in, in a, you know, in premarital sex, it demonstrates that they have a relationship already. And if they have a relationship already, it's very likely that they're not in the pre-relation, they, or they haven't engaged in the pre-relationship uh, uh, time, or, you know, just like we said, the, the, the discovery, character discovery, uh, perhaps as, uh, as, as necessary as uh, uh, they should have. And therefore, they jump right away into relationship state, and, you know, then later on, when they actually get married and they discover things about each other that, had they known earlier, they would not have done this. Well, but, you know, they were negligent in their, in their, in their due diligence. That's my theory. You don't like it. Okay. I, I can see it some of the time. I love but, it. But some of the time, other times, I think not to. I think there's, some, there's a large portion of people who are conservative who do move slow and then do have relationships. That's what you're saying. That's compatibility. But everyone agrees that, I think as much debate as there was here, everyone agrees that for marriage to succeed, they have to be compatible. Absolutely. Agreed. Okay. So let's move on to the next one. Common goals. Common goals, uh, I like to say that um, people could connect on one one of three levels. You connect uh, either because you have a common interest. We're both huge Bruce Springsteen fans, I like to say. right? You know, know, there's a cult of... uh, Boss fans, people love them, right? Uh, then people have, you know, co- chemistry, compatibility. They just, they, you know, they just, people you get along with, people you don't get along with. It's just, it's kind of unquantifiable. It's just the people you have chemistry with and people you don't have com- chemistry with. And then there's common goals, common life goals. Where you connect on an idea, right? something that you want to accomplish in life. And I find um, that... If someone bases their relationship on common interests alone, right, we know that interests change. Right? What you were into when you were 20 or when you are 18 in college is not what you're into right now. So if what's binding you together is this common interest, I know a friend of mine told me that his, his, brother-in-law, his brother and his, and his sister-in-law, they're like hugely into comics. I guess they're adults that are into comics. Like, yeah, it's bizarre, whatever. <laughs> huge, huge, huge. Like, this is the one thing they just, you know, all <laughs> into these superhero comics. And let's say that changes. And one day you get, you, you, don't, you don't have that common interest. You know, what's going to happen to that relationship that was based on, you know, primarily on this shared interest? If the bind of a relationship falls, then relationship itself will likely follow suit. Hence, perhaps we could say that as part of the dating process, it's important to not only look for common interests, to look for more, like like we mentioned, compatibility, but also common life goals. If marriage is indeed a journey, it's a process, right? There has to be a destination. Whatever that may be, but if two people share common life goals, it could be to have a wonderful family and to, you know, but if, as long as they share something and they're trying to go towards something, 
their marriage is more likely to succeed. As opposed to, we hear, um, you know, divorces that they, they, they just... It's, they just lose it because they're just disenchanted with each other. And, and they can't really say why. They, they just, I don't, I, I don't know why I'm in this. Like, they, 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 they're just ex- exasperation with the marriage. And what do you mean? You made, you made, a, you made a lifelong commitment to let do us part. What happened? What changed? Well, what changed was is that you weren't going anywhere. So it was a nice relationship while it lasted. But from now, where are we going forward? What, what's the end game, so to speak? If there isn't a life goal, if, if, if they're not goal mates, perhaps they shouldn't be soul mates. Oh, gosh. I should go home. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. Okay, it was so nice being here. Uh, it was lovely. Yeah, but... I find that, at least me and my wife, which is the marriage that I know best, uh, we don't share any common interests. Almost any common interests. Like, Chaya's hobbies and my hobbies don't... There's almost no overlap. Almost no overlap. And I I think it's it's even a better thing because what we're sharing is not our interests. Do y'all have a common goal, though? But we have a common goal. We have a common goal. And that's much deeper, much more profound than just the common interest. And I think my my parents also, my parents just celebrated the 40th or 40th anniversary. I'm thinking like, is there anything they'd like to do together? We're not like to do together, but anything like they, they that my, my, my dad likes flying. Uh, he's a pilot. He likes intellectual pursuits. And my mother is more like a interpersonal, gregarious, social. Yeah, they're, they're just different, they're different breeds. But So that's that's like the the, the the bizarre science of compatibility. How exactly it works? Opposites attract. Opposites attract. But the point is, with regards to interests, their interests, it's possible for them to have totally divergent interests, but have a very strong and stable relationship because the relationship is based on something way beyond interests. So, I, once again, this is another aspect of compatibility that. Well, chemistry, chemi- chemistry is level one. Compatibility is like characters level two. Common goals, I put at level level three, because chemistry is very easy to determine. You sit down with someone for five minutes, you find out if you have chemistry. That's all you need to do. Yeah, like you know, you know, sometimes you meet people and you just you just don't like them, and and you it's sad, but it's just. <laughs> Yeah, and it's bizarre because it's just, for whatever reason, people have these 
reactions people they meet. And that's that's chemistry. And you meet someone that you like, it's very readily apparent. That's chemistry. Higher levels, character, right? compatibility. Common goals is the next level. Let's move on to the next C. Uh, and that is, I think, maybe the most important one is commitment. Commitment is the attitude of the relationship. What's the attitude? We know that as we mentioned earlier, today's society is much more comfortable with divorce than it ever was. And perhaps that that alone is a tremendous contributor to the divorce rate. Because if, if it's just something to take very lightly, it's kind of like you know, marriage is almost disposable. Well, everyone gets divorced. It's a very common part of life. There's the mar- courtship marriage and then kids or maybe not kids and then divorce it's very normal very common and, you know that increases uh, the li- likability of, of someone actually getting divorced as well The family's divorced already. Like it's. Or or even a community. No, I'm saying there's there's the family, but there's also the the community. Used it used to be that divorce was stigmatized, and that uh, you know the community would would not be so receptive to that, mm-hmm. and that alone would compel someone to try to work it out, right. find some way to work it out. But once again, it's, it's part of the attitude. So yes, there are artificial ways to do that by being part of a certain community or a certain or going back to the 1920s. But in practicality, I think it's about reframing the attitude of relationship. When you go into it, when someone actually says, till death do us part, do they really mean that? Or they're just saying it, but in reality, they're thinking till the first bump of the road, the first obstacle, right? Because invariably, there will be bumps in the road. And this attitude will determine what happens when you hit a bump of the road. Why do I say there's always been bumps in the road? Because acclimating to someone on a very close, ongoing uh, a basis every day, right? all the time you're with someone, right? you're sharing your life with someone, and you have to acclimate. You have to each learn to compromise. It's going to happen, and there are going to be times of frustration, especially at the beginning of the marriage. So there will be bumps, guaranteed. Right? And this is obviously compounded by the fact that uh, they have different attitudes on everything in life. From their familial perspective, like my family did it this way, well, my family did it this way. Or the fact that just, you know, men and women have different ways of approaching almost everything in life. That's just the reality. So there's going to be bumps. If my attitude is, I know there's going to be bumps. I'm dedicated to it. I'm going to compromise a little bit. I'm going to give up a little bit of my own individuality, my own identity, for the sake of, of you know, of the both of us, of the marriage, then in all likelihood the marriage will succeed uh, as, you know, after that uh, acclimation period. 
Otherwise, if I'm saying, okay, I'm going in, but I'm very hesitatingly, and the first sign of any resistance or any any any, any challenge, any difficulty, I'm gonna I'm gonna bolt. Well, you probably will bolt because you will face that 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 time of that 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 you know that challenge, that bump of the road. You know, the Talmud tells us that the uh, marriage is as difficult as the splitting to the sea. You ever heard that ever? It's as difficult to get married as it is to split the sea. And that could go many, many ways, as we are well familiar with. When the Torah says something, when Talmud says something, there's multiple facets of interpretation that could be um, that could be levied on that Gemara, on the Talmud. Uh, one of them, one of my favorite ways to uh, analyze this particular piece of Talmud is that if you if you look at the Mitrash that describes what happened at the split of the sea, so we're used to the image of just Moses going like that. And let's, you know, the sea split. What actually happened is that people jumped in the water and they went till it was like right by their nose and then it split. And there are those that tried to take this imagery of jumping into the water as being the kind of attitude that you have to you have to embrace in marriage. You cannot dip your toe in. It's like the dipping the toe in the pool when it's cold. If you just dip your toe in, you'll never go in. But if you just jump in, right, you fully submerge yourself, you plunge yourself into it, then you'll succeed because then you're dedicated, then you're committed to it. If you're saying, I'll do it, but as soon as it gets a little cold, I'm out, you'll never get into it and you'll always stay outside, you're waiting for it to get warmer. So, and that's what happened by the split of the sea. Split of the sea is they they jumped in and and Moses jumped in, what do you jump in? (laughs) Where am I going? Just can't keep on walking out out to the sea? I I understand the mid-rush That's another way to uh, to look at it. There's another way to look at it as being that the greatest miracle, so to speak, of splitting the sea is, in God's eyes, um, as difficult as what we seem to think is kind of simple. Putting what you know, man and wife together. If your marriage isn't as rocky, maybe you both have to turn to God to make it succeed. Or yeah, maybe we know that the uh, just thought of another one. We know that the Egyptians uh, at the split of the sea were were drowned. Right. So maybe marriage is the kind of thing that for some people it's wonderful. It's, you're walking in the water, and some people it's just miserable. You just drown and drown in the water. Yeah, it's it's rocky water for everyone, but for some people um, they're successful in it and it's wonderful, and other people they drown in it and they fail at it. And other people need to be philosophers. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things also about marriage is with your analogy there about just jumping in. Sometimes we do jump into things, and marriage is one of them for which we have not yet learned the ropes. We haven't really learned how to swim. And when you do jump in, you jump in with both feet, thinking that um, that it's going to be successful. And then, like 10 or 20 years into the relationship, you figure out really quickly that you better learn how to swim. Because marriage will take you under. Mm-hmm. And it really doesn't well, take but that, that That's another excellent point, is that if, you don't, if you're not prepared for the realities of marriage, you if you have really rosy good. fantasies about mm-hmm. what's actually going to happen, well, it's you'll find out. Like, exactly. So if you don't know how to swim, 
another great example. If you don't know how to swim, you don't know that you need to swim. You just drop you in the water. Before you know it, it's like you're what's happening. I can't breathe anymore. Right? You start you start going crazy. So that's another example, another excellent uh, analysis of this particular piece of Talmudic lesson you know, that you have to actually know what you're getting yourself into. And you have to, you know, don't be deceived by this attitude of like, oh, yeah, we'll get married. It'll be great. Wonderful party. It's so, it's so great now. No, because invariably every single marriage has its ups and downs, its trials and tribulations, its challenges, its rocky moments. Right? You have to know that. If you don't know that, you're unprepared. If you're unprepared, well, why would you go into something uh, as important as this unprepared? I can remember something Dr. Laura said many years ago. I think I was still living in California. And some lady called, and uh, and it was typically female callers whenever I was listening to her a number of years ago. And, and Dr. Laura's uh, response to her was, how is it that you can share a roll of toilet paper with someone, but you cannot go to that same person and tell them how you feel? I've never forgotten it. In other words, how is it that we go through the intimacies of life, and we do, with the intimacies of marriage, but yet we find it difficult to turn to your, our husbands and tell them, you know, I'm not feeling very lovable to you right now, or, you know, you really ticked me off, or you really did. We have a difficult time as humans expressing our emotions to the person with whom we are so intimately connected. Mm-hmm. And that, and that would fall under the next C, which is communication. Thanks. <laughs> always, a, always a step ahead. Uh, I like to uh, view marriage as the same way someone should go about getting a tattoo. Now, remember, tattoos are forbidden by Jewish law in Deuteronomy. But a tattoo is kind of, it has a degree of permanence. You're doing this and you know for the rest of your life this will be tattooed into your skin. It can be removed. It can be removed. It's very painful. And there's, less, there's always going to be scars. That has to be the attitude. When I'm going in, I'm committed. This is going to be my my part, the person I'm sharing the rest of my life with. I, there, there is an out, but it's not it's not something that you you have in mind at all uh, when you go into it. Now, I, I, I want to stress again. I'm not trying to say that there's no room for divorce. My point is, is that. If you leave emergency exits, if you're always planning your getaway, if at any sign of resistance you're going to leave and abandon this endeavor, you you will abandon the endeavor because there will always will be some sort of um, uh, hiccup in the relationship. It's always going to happen. So how do we ensure before you go into something that you're going to be successful at it when we know there's going to be a challenge? You're going to face a challenge. You have to go in with the attitude. I know there's going to be challenges, and I'm committed to uh, uh, to, to wear you know to weather the storm. That attitude is going to make or break the relationship, and that's why I advise not not to, as a, not a, as a, not a certified financial advisor. Don't go separate bank accounts because separate bank accounts means or prenuptial. It means you're already planning your post marriage life. It means in your head you're thinking about. Getting removal of the tattoo before you actually got it. Who does that? Right. You have to go in with this attitude of it being permanent, and you're being committed to it. And someone once used the illustration of like, uh, how committed are you to your to your hand? Be very to your hand. 
very committed. Well, what if what if it's ugly? What if you don't like it? What do you mean? It's my hand. Like, uh, what if you walk down the street and see a hand that's nicer? Right? <laughs> you have to have that relationship with your spouse. That that, that attitude. It's part of you. Right? Two parts of one. As the Torah tells us that you should be one flesh. That attitude is what's going to be, uh, what's going to help you uh, through the tumultuous times of the beginning, formation, formation period of the marriage. And yes, there may come a time where someone's hand is dangerous to them. Right? Someone's hand is gained greenness. And, uh, then, they, then the proper attitude would be to remove the hand. Right? But the <laughs> But, yeah, but that's but that's a worst case scenario. That's not something that you go into, you know, uh, uh, planning for. Amputation is a last resort. Amputation is always a last resort. Uh, there was a uh, there was a very famous uh, rabbi who lived in Israel in the past century. His name was Rabbi Ariel Levine. He was he was like the he was the he was like the prison rabbi. He was like the I would call him a tzaddik because he was so he was so pious. He loved all Jews and he would go to like teach Torah in prisons to like the lowest levels of society. And uh, famously, he once went to the doctor with his wife and says, "My my wife's leg hurts us. My wife's leg hurts us." And people, uh, I've I've used this story as an example of of the kind of attitude you have to have. This is part of who I am. I'm committed to this. To this, I'm in it. If they experience pain, I experience pain. Right? I'm jumping in. I'm totally dedicated. And if you're actually committed to something, you invest in it. You take steps to maintain it. If you're committed to something, it could be a project. It could be anything. A relationship as well. You're gonna do whatever it takes to make sure the relationship is successful. So, like our anniversary, or 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 like taking steps to make sure that, or or compromising. Compromise is so important because the reality is that a marriage is putting the the square, the square, the square in the in the in the circle. What it has to go? What's that say? What's that line? Circle into a square. Or a square into a circle. It, the, the pothole, right? There's always going to be resistance, and unless you're willing to compromise, it won't fit. It won't work, and that's obviously for that, that. That's for both uh, halves of the relationship. They have to be willing to compromise. You're only willing to compromise. It's very painful to compromise. You're only willing to do it if you're committed to it. Because if you're committed, you're going to be invested in it. You're going to take steps to make sure to preserve, to sustain, to nourish. To ensure the continuity of this thing that you're committed to. So then compromise is number five? No, well, I, I think you should add compromise. It's not a bad idea. I'll add it. So compromise is not one of the official. Not the official. But, but is it under the. Um, but communication is, right? Communication is one of them. That's number four. It's number four. I'll put five. I'm, I'm planning on, uh, you know, like uh, the. Uh, Seven habits of highly successful people, or highly, if whatever, highly effective people, and then and then there's the eighth habit, uh, yeah. and then there's the uh, the book called Forty Eight Levels of Power. It's about like persuasion. It's like an evil book, but it'll teach you how to persuade other people. And then and then they wrote the Forty Nine. Right? Anytime something's successful, they always just squeeze yeah, a sequel out of it. Yeah, they have to find a reason. So. Uh, after the five C's, we'll say the sixth C.
and then we'll do the seventh C. <laughs> I like that. Compromise, and we said... On, on compromise, what sometimes happens is even, you know, you have the, the issue of somebody saying, well, I compromised here, and I compromised here, and it still doesn't... But is that, is that an attitude that's, that's, that's likely to contribute to the success or the failure of the marriage? Success. By... by by saying I did this, where do you do that? Yes. Okay, so that so so if so, then that's something because you should it do. It brings the other person into check. Accountability. This is not a one-sided compromise. But I I find that if someone goes out of their way to do something for the other person, the other person will organically respond in kind. Hopefully. Hopefully. But, I, but, but yes, but you, what you're saying is correct. The, all this is is like we say, semantics. So. It's possible, whatever the reality is, whatever is going to contribute positively to the relationship is something that you should do because you're committed to it. So we're only debating as to the merits of what the proper response is and that might be uh, up to this particular situation, the particular character of uh, you know, the people involved. Either way, whatever it takes to make sure that the relationship is going to uh, go on and, and, you know, and, and, and be preserved in the best possible way, if someone's committed, they're going to take that step. And that has to be the attitude. And if you think that demanding uh, your spouse to also compromise is going to positively impact the relationship, well, then do that. If you think perhaps that maybe it's better for you to do something and be altruistic about it, then that will positively contribute to the relationship, then do that. Whatever is, whatever is necessary. That's why commitment is kind of a catch-all. Right? It's an attitude, and that attitude has many, many facets to it because whatever... Commitment means you're invested. Whatever, whatever it's going to take, that's what you're going to do. Uh, number four, communication. I, uh, my philosophy is that instead of spending so much time before marriage in a rela- engaging in relationship, perhaps they should spend some time, as we mentioned earlier, to engage in education about marriage. And about relationships. If people have rosy fantasies about what marriage is all about, they're in for a surprise. If people do not know the basics about the differences between the way men communicate and the way women communicate, they're going to be very frustrated in their marriages. So... I argue that one of the best things that you could do in a marriage is constantly be reminding of yourself of the differences in the way people communicate. And, you know, if, if my wife says that the garbage is overflowing, what she really is saying is take out the garbage. Take out the garbage. And for, for, like, if, you know, if you're in a society of men, it doesn't make any sense. If you want to take out the garbage, the most effective way to say it is take out the garbage. But that's just... And this little quirk is something that we know because we understand how the differences in the way men and women communicate. But if someone does not know that, it's like being married to someone who you don't you don't share... Like you're married to someone who speaks only Mandarin Chinese. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> Would you do that? I, I know someone who married... Uh, he, married a, he married a foreigner and they just spent like the first three years of the marriage like learning each other's language and I think it actually worked out pretty well <laughs> but I guess it's hard to fight when you don't you, get, you don't share a language uh, but 
<laughs> everyone has their own way of doing things, but that's important. It's important to learn. I wonder if they had a goal, like you alluded to earlier, of, of learning each other's language. Because, you know, if, if they couldn't even communicate with each other on a basic level, uh, at least with, with verbal um, communication, then they wouldn't think there was a foundation for very strong... Certainly, unless they had a goal, which is the original thing, or one of the original things, that we will make this life together and we're going to learn each other's uh, language. Didn't Gary Smalley write a book called The Language of Love? I think so. And that is that men speak a different love language than do women. And you have the famous books by um, Men Are From Mars. John Gray. Yeah, John Gray. And once again, you have to squeeze out the sequels. Mars and Venus on a date, and Mars and Venus in the bedroom, and Mars and Venus in orbit, or whatever. <laughs> uh, next part of communication is to verbalize what you want and what you need. This is so important, and as, as uh, Janet mentioned, if you want something, say it. Like this, one, Sometimes frustration builds because... Every time my wife uses my brush or my toothbrush, it irritates me. And I don't like the way they squeeze the toothbrush. I, I squeeze the toothbrush from the bottom, the toothpaste from the bottom. Like, this is the way I do it. And I cannot understand why she or he refuses to do that way. And that builds up. And sometimes people have, they, get a, they have some sort of anger eruption of something so trivial because there was pent up, built up, anger from something else and that they never communicated. But aren't there certain things, Rabbi, that you accept each other's idiosyncrasies? Yes, but, but, but if, but, and, 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 that, and that's fine. But if, and, that, and that's fine, you can say this is just the way they do it and that's fine, Pfft, no big deal. But if it's bothering you and it's like there's a buildup and I can't understand how they always do X, Y, or Z. Like, then it's it's very important to communicate that because even though X, Y, and Z might not be that important, the reality is is that the way people uh, collect and associate information is that you could be angry for some entirely other reason and then you only need a spark plug. And the spark plug sets off the dynamite that was just pent up from something else that if had you just told them, they would have just changed it. It's no big deal. And you think that you're doing the right thing by holding it back, by swallowing it, but it's just building up and again and again, and then eventually uh, and then, then, you know, that's not the proper way to do it. And yes, it is difficult. You know, it's, it's very hard for us to express verbally uh, what we want, because you have to also do it in a way that you're not making someone feel bad, of course. You don't want to make people, you know, you have to be very clever in how you communicate it. Uh, but it's very important. Is that 
Well said. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> we all agree. That was good. It was lovely. I think you hit the nail on the head. Um, I had a friend of mine who was having a difficult marriage, and, um, and that's exactly what the husband said to her. He said, you're not on my team. And I thought, see, I would never have languaged it that way, but that's the way he languaged it. Mm-hmm. It'd be a male thing about the team issue. Mm-hmm. I don't think women think about teams. Yeah, they're not real into sports, if I recall. No. I go to a game if somebody says, let's go, but I don't know for which direction they even run. <laughs> I remember you telling me that. Uh, communication, I think, also extends to just talking. You know, you're sharing your life with someone. It's very important for you to know, even the most, to tell your spouse what's happening in your life. Like, even things which aren't so important, right? Because what you're really doing is sharing your life with someone. And how do you share your life? Well, you say, well, I had a class today in uh, the Humble. It was lovely. And everyone contributed so nicely. And everyone seemed to agree. And it was, it was wonderful. And, and your wife said, they, and my wife would say, oh, they really believed everything you said about our ma- marriage? And I'll say, they believed it. Or something like that. She's going to say, uh. I'll say, oh, I can't. Yeah, you pulled the, the, yeah, pull the wool over them. <laughs> you I make think, it sound like it's so wonderful. But you know, one of the things also is that whenever you say you want something, you really do have to own that. You have to hook, line, and sinker. Feel it and uh, and want it enough and to I, express it out loud. Um, a lot of times we we will express it internally that we would like something, but it's much more difficult to want it enough to it say is, it. It is difficult, yeah, hundred percent. And like it's probably people avoid doing it. Like it's difficult. There's the risk of 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 of, uh, of offending someone, making them feel bad. But ultimately, it's very important. A lady friend used to say to me, I've been married all these years. If my husband really knew me, he would know what I want. And I always thought that I've met never a man that was a mind reader. You have to, like, spell it out. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's, that's true. Men are they not mind readers. Because they don't get it. You know, my, my, I'm thinking about my parents. It's uh, always bizarre for a child to analyze their own parents' marriage. Uh, but... My parents, every single night, they like make, each other, make teas for each other and sit on the couch and like talk for like an hour. Like no cell phones, no television, like no internet, and it, like and like and like for us as children, that's what we saw. Like, um, you know, I wish I could do the same thing with you know, uh, and it's something to emulate. It's something to it's something to admire. You know, and my parents, I every parent, every child can analyze a parent relationship and say, oh, what do you mean? They're so dysfunctional, X, Y, and Z. But, but that, that's something really remarkable. And you also made the point earlier that your parents have different interests. Completely yeah, different interests. Obviously, that was an important thing to, for them to do mm-hmm. uh, and obviously enhance their marriage. Uh, you said they were in it 40, 40, 40 years, yeah. yeah. So that was obviously, you make it sound like that's something they look forward to doing. It mm-hmm. was just something they enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Well, Sounds like a wonderful way to unwind after yeah. a day, to reconnect. Mm-hmm. But, it, but, not to, not to say that it's easy. It's not easy. Nothing is easy. Nothing is easy. Okay, nothing's easy. Um, that's true. But this is but this is also like it's and it's something which is so crucial to the marriage. And that's the fourth C. So we have compatibility, common goals, uh, commitment, communication, 
Last one, complete sexual and emotional fidelity. What do we mean by that? So we have a few studies here. Huh? <laughs> uh, and it, well, it, 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 I mean, that's just, you would think that would just be common sense. It apparently wasn't for Hillary not to bring politics. Did you say complete, <laughs> sexual, complete sexual and emotional fidelity? Fidelity, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just... You're so bad. <laughs> Come sit next to me. <laughs> so, um, why is this important? So, so yes, yeah, so there's the fidelity, but why, well, why are people unfaithful? So, I have a few, a few uh, studies here. Uh, so, study number one, and I, I, have those, I have the sources, if anyone's interested in the sources for this. Um, a couple, on average, the first month of their marriage will sleep together about 17 times. Fast forward to the end of the first year, the final month of their first marriage, that number will re- be reduced to eight. So it's more than 50% drop. And that drop is just the beginning of, it's, it's just the harbinger of things to come. Because once it drops, it drops precipitously. I want to make sure I hear you correctly. The first year of marriage. First month of marriage. Excuse me, first month of marriage, you have sexual relations. On average. Times. That's More the average. Every other day. And by the end of the year, you have. The final month, it's down final to month eight. Eight times. Yeah, so that's a more than a 50% uh, reduction. Uh, study number two uh, people married for less than three years. Uh, claim a seventy-two percent of them claim to sleep together at least several times a week, and fifty-eight percent say that their sex life is very exciting. Okay, so less than three years, fifty-eight percent say their sex life is very exciting. Fast forward uh, to people married for more than ten years, only twenty-nine percent say their sex life is very exciting. So that's a reduction of once again fifty percent, and only thirty-two percent say that they have that they sleep together. So at least several times a week. So once again, we see a precipitous drop in the sexual activity and excitement in the realms of a marriage. Um, the third one, I think, is a is a piggyback on the on the first and second one. Was that thirty six percent of respondents who were not satisfied with the sexual relationship have indeed uh, been unfaithful to their spouses? And we know uh, it's plainly obvious that if infidelity exists in a relationship that is grounds for divorce in most cases, uh, when, at least when there's no political uh, implications. <laughs> uh, uh, and I want to... You would think that if the marriage is actually evolving, developing, deepening, then their emotional and physical relationship should deepen as well. So how come it, it you know there's inverse the inverse direction of what you would assume to be the emotional relationship and uh, which is deepening hopefully you would assume uh, while the physical relationship is actually uh, eroding and, and the peak of their physical relationship is probably the beginning of the marriage and it's just downhill from there. Okay. I uh, once someone once made this illustration. That if uh, every time a, a couple slept together, they would put a coin in a jar, drop a coin in the jar, uh, 
I'm sure there's some people that do this. <laughs> Drop the coin in the jar, and then after five years of marriage, every time they sit together, they start extracting a coin from the jar. So someone once did the math and said that after 50 years, there will still be coins in the jar. Because as they get further and further away from the beginning of their marriage, their frequency of sleeping together is dramatically being decreased. So, so the relationship, the physical relationship, peaks at the beginning when we can assume or we hope that the emotional relationship will peak or, or keep on peaking, or constantly be growing and developing. So, but the problem with that is that there's a direct link between uh, sexual inactivity and boredom with one's spouse and extramarital sex. And so, so, so that's why, and, and so that's so a tremendous cause for, uh, you know, for damage to the relationship. Um, so I, I'll tell you what the Talmud says. Okay. Uh, the Talmud, uh, there's a section of the Talmud, um, and there's a law in the Torah called the Laws of Nida. The Laws of Nida are the laws of separation between a husband and wife during uh, during a, when a, a woman's menstruation period. Uh, this is outlined in the Torah. It's not, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a new idea. Uh, there's an entire book in the Talmud that describes the laws, but it also gives us an insight as to the reason behind the laws. And it's very unusual for the Talmud tells the reason. Oftentimes, the Torah tells us a law. That's the way it is. Put a mezuzah. Don't ask questions. Well, a mezuzah might say the reason just to remind you. Uh, but oftentimes, it's you know you, you know you do a mitzvah, and that's why you keep kosher. Why? Because that's what the Torah says. You know, the, the Torah doesn't say you eat kosher because of X, Y, and Z. But with regards to the laws of Nida, it says, on Nida, track date Nida, the book is called Nida as well, 31b, it says, says Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Meir says, why did the Torah say that a man should separate from his wife for seven days after she uh, has her period? Because otherwise they would grow to dislike the physical relationship with each other. Uh, and, and therefore... The, the Torah commands us to have a separation for uh, seven days, but it's really 12 days. Seven days is the seven clean days after the period would end. And then, after that, so they've been separated for at least 12 days, then the excitement is brought back as if, uh, like, like, like the day of their marriage. That's what it says on the top. So you need a break. Like the day, like the like the day, but it's I call it the recurring honeymoon experience. What this Torah portion enables us to achieve is to constantly be going back to the relationship of the honeymoon, constantly going back to that peak. Why is that? Because uh, this is what the Talmud is saying. If a couple doesn't have any breaks, they they lose interest. That's what it says. If they, if they never have breaks, they lose interest with each other. Like we see, the, the statistics clearly uh, prove this point. 
Uh, and that's when the Torah says, I'm going to give you a law, which seems to be very difficult to observe. And you ask people that observe it, they, they have a, it's not an easy thing, especially not at the beginning of the marriage. Uh, but it's wonderful. And everyone that I know that, that observes it swears by it. Because this keeps the physical relationship, relationship fresh. Okay, so you want to know the exact rundown? Yeah. Everything? Yeah. Okay, so uh, the Torah says a few things. Do not sleep with uh, uh, your wife when she is menstruating, and do not be close to her. Close to her. So what does closeness mean? So uh, the Talmud uh, gives a, a, a list of closeness. A, no physical touching. They don't touch each other. They don't pass things to each other. Don't what? Pass things to each other. In other words, he has to make his own breakfast. He has to pack his own lunch. He has to get his own dinner. No. <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm just listening to what you're saying. She's making sure she's surrounding she can't that law. Right. I'm she's building a fence. It's around the top. Thank you. Sure the female got that. it, and you looked at me like I had two heads. <laughs> she's building a fence around the top. Yes, the thing is. You can't pass anything to them? No, no. You can't pass like that hand-to-hand, but you could pass like that. But one, with regards to food, even food, like um, there's a, uh, I, I could give the whole list of the laws. Um, but one of, the, one of the things is that if 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 he or she present each other with food, they have to present it in a way that indicates uh, separation. Like we said, don't be close. Don't be close physically. And the idea behind it is that the physical relationship is suspended for a week, week and a half, whatever. So in, and it gives them a time to work on the emotional relationship, uh, but also it gives them this little pause, this break in action, which will uh, reignite the physical passion that they had at their honeymoon. Uh, could it also be construed that you have separate separate bedrooms during that? Uh, not separate bedrooms, I know, even though I know people that do that, uh, but separate beds. I'm, so, I'm lost here. Who leaves the bedroom? No one Female? leaves the bedroom. Excuse me. If you don't sleep in the same bed, who... So there's two beds in the bedroom. Okay. Which My question being, which partner leaves the original bed? Is it the husband? Who says there's the an original bed? bed? Why is there an original bed? <laughs> okay. Why can there be two beds? And then you can sleep in one... one Two weeks, you can sleep in one bed, and then the, then you go and you know. I mean, if they're Gee. right next to each other, I mean, Lucy and Ricky did it. I mean, you know, so. I, that is an that's an interesting <laughs> theory. I've never seen bedrooms though that have two beds. Typically, in a master bedroom, you have one bed. My question simply would be, which partner would leave that marriage bed? Because most. Most people don't observe this law. People that observe this law typically have two beds. I have two queen size beds in In the same room. Yes, in the same room. You have a big master suite. I have a very large master bedroom. Yes, and there's still plenty of room. It's like six hundred square feet. So you observe this law, absolutely. So and I swear by it. And everyone I know that observes this law swears by it. It's part of the Torah. And they're uh, probably the same bed, basically the same beds. They're not They're two, identical one, beds. So one is not more desirable than the other. Exactly. So, so it's not like... Uh, who cares which one the other one goes in? I know people that had smaller bedrooms. I know uh, someone that had one, like, uh, like queen or king-size bed, and one, like, a uh, twin bed. And they would alternate uh, during uh, 
uh, you know, during the times where they were not Nida, so they would both sleep on the larger bed. I'm just Your trying question to think one stand. bed is a lot nicer than the other. And I'm trying to look at the physicality of it. Yeah, I'm saying it's a very practical leaves, problem. And yeah. who leaves the bed? So what they would do is the they would alternate. That that during uh, one period of Nida, he would sleep in the larger bed, and she would sleep in the smaller bed, and then during the other time, they would, they would switch. Or every couple finds a way to deal with these little... Um, part, part well, part of, it kind of goes back to happiness. That's what you said. So sometimes when you don't have that, then you realize how much you need it. Like, for example, when you said the rabbi was putting his head in the water because the air was stinky yeah, in New York. but mm-hmm. So then he needed that. So maybe it's going back to that happiness where you separate so you don't have that intimacy. So when you do have it, you appreciate it. That's true. Absolutely. And, and and you kind of, you want it. Like, it's something that you cannot have. It's like a forbidden thing for a certain amount of time, and that increases your desire to have that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. what it brings to your... Um, so, so, so this, this uh, from what I understand, from what I know, I know that the Muslims have a similar law. I don't know exactly. I'm not an expert in Muslim law, but uh, they do have something similar to that. Um, as is many Muslim laws are, are modeled after Jewish laws. Uh, you know, the original um, Islamic Day of Rest, for example, was on Saturday. Then uh, they said that the Jews, and they would face Jerusalem. Then they said the Jews aren't following. We're actually going to put our tushies to Jerusalem and face Mecca. Uh, but from what I understand, I don't know of any other method... Uh, that is demonstrably successful in preventing the erosion of the sexual interest and activity levels other than what I call the recurring honeymoon experience that the Torah outlines for us. And like we said, we have the Talmud that testifies that this is the way to do it. Curious, Rabbi, is there any permit? Because the fifth one was, I think, the verbatim explicit uh, committed sexual uh, fidelity. He repeated, I, yes, uh, complete sexual and emotional fidelity. Okay, now is there any provision in Judaism to where if one violates that, that there can be forgiveness? If someone violates. There could be forgiveness for almost anything. You know, the Maimonides says that there's only one unforgivable sin, and that's murder, because that's irretractable. Um, but there may be other things which are irretractable, like uh, infidelity that leads to a child, what we would call a bastard, is something which is irrevocable. Like, there's nothing you can do to undo that. Uh, but uh, either way, we, we believe in the idea of tshuva, that uh, repentance is always possible. People could always atone. Not not to say that peop- that someone could say, I did something wrong, and now force uh, their spouse to forgive them. Uh, not to say that uh, usually, in most cases, um, infidelity is a cause for divorce, a legitimate cause for divorce. Uh, it's possible for someone to forgive. I, I would assume so. And I know, if I, I, don't know I don't know why they would, you know, it's a, it's a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous infringement on the sanctity of the marriage. Uh, is it possible? Yes, I think it's possible. Um, and like, um, it, 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 we believe that when someone does something wrong and they repent for it, that the Almighty is able to forgive them. Uh, to get your spouse to forgive you is not a whole, the whole different thing. But, uh, but, you know, but it's possible. I think it is possible. 
Uh, if someone's genuine about it, that someone made a mistake, it's possible. Or some, he or she made a mistake, it's possible. Um, I don't think it's... I think most cases it won't work, and most cases a, a degree of trust has been breached that can never... That can... So that so that might ne- might never be the same. Uh, th- th- does it necessarily spell the end of the marriage? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. Um, uh, but it, it shouldn't come to that. Uh, and you know, then there, there's a pattern. Like it's it's kind of like inflation. It's always coming out against you. Like you're, you're, it's always a battle against against the erosion of the value of your money. Right? Mm-hmm. It's like that with with uh, the physical relationship in a marriage. You're as time progresses, as the marriage progresses, if left, unless you do something about that, the relation, the, the frequency and the excitement of the sexual relationship will diminish. That's the reality. Uh, and if you want to ensure that your marriage is successful, you have to take steps to make sure that this is not going to happen to you, that sexual boredom um, will either be vanquished or will be held in check and will not bring to infidelity. Uh, sexual fidelity. Emotional fidelity is something a little bit more uh, sublime, or not sublime, I don't think that has a positive connotation, but a little bit uh, less quantifiable because to be emotionally faithful to someone, it means to have your emotions um, centered around a single individual person and not someone else. And it's always... There's always a fine line between having close friends, confidants, co-workers that you share business relationship with or even personal relationship with. But there comes a point in time where you're sharing things, you know, you have an emotional aspect to a relationship with someone other than your spouse. And that can be very dangerous. It can lead to infidelity, but it can also lead to you comparing your spouse to that person and, and... Really doing the activities, sharing aspects of your life and your day and your work and your vacation, uh, you know, buying things for them, things that you should do with your spouse, but you're doing with someone else. So, it's, it, you know, a marriage is sharing the life with an with individual person and not anyone else. So it's always a fine line. It's, it's not so easy to give exact parameters as to when a relationship uh, is encroaching on a marriage. Or, and, and a historical relationship is a question of marriage. So it's, so it's very hard to define, but there is a danger of having deep relationships with people other than your spouse uh, because that will damage the relationship that you have with your spouse. And uh, my guarantee, back to the Wolby guarantee, is that if, if someone has these five boxes checked, if someone has all five Cs, perhaps even the two extra Cs, uh, uh, compatibility, Common goals, commitment, communication, complete sexual and emotional fidelity, their marriage will not only not fail, they won't get divorced, it'll be wonderful. Because marriage is wonderful if it's done in the proper context with the proper person. It's wonderful because it's like you're a different person. Like you have someone that you share your life with. It's just a different life. It's a much higher form of living. Sharing your life with someone else. You know there's someone that you can rely on totally. This is part of you also. This is part of you. Think about that. How painful is it to lose part of you? Very painful. Because you really like part of you. <laughs> so it, you have to, if you lose a part of you, you have to learn to function without that part 
Exactly. The Talmud says that there's there's a certain level of just an experience that's unmatched. Uh, that's the experience of a marriage. And if someone, God forbid, loses their spouse, there's nothing that they could do to bring that back. Nothing. Because part of them, you know, is not there with them anymore. Uh, and and uh, so so that so that's that. I hope y'all enjoyed, and it was wonderful. I enjoyed. And uh, next week, what's what's on tap for next week? And remembers what's on tap for next week.